This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, Politicology. It's Ron Steslow, and it is the day after a really strange election night. And I thought we'd bring you something a little bit different today. I spent most of my day checking in with some of the people you've heard from a lot on the show. I talked to campaign veterans, elected officials, to get their reactions to everything happening in real time. So what you're about to hear is a series of phone calls with some of my favorite people. Hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good morning. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? I'm a lot better than I thought I was going to be. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, we talked a lot about Democrats playing with fire, right? In the Michigan third house race, New Hampshire Senate race, they pushed for extremist uh, election denying anti-democracy candidates in the Republican primaries to set up you know, better general elections they thought they could win. And it worked. So the question now, uh, as Democrats won both of those races, what, the, what, what is the danger going to be if they look at these wins and try to make that an even more frequent strategy going forward? Yeah, it did work uh, this time. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that it worked this time. And I do have an issue putting, you know, election deniers in any shape or form on the ballot. But that's not to be said. To be fair, Republicans for decades have been doing things like this. It was part of our politics, and now the Democrats are taking a shot at it. Um, I find it very dangerous in this time that we are in as a country, especially looking to 2024, because although it worked today, I'm not sure that it can work again, and we may end up with some very dangerous candidates on the ballot as or elected mm-hmm. to office as a result. Mm-hmm. And zooming out a little bit, what else on the map surprised you? What was the what was the, the most surprising takeaway? I would say not surprising, but happy takeaway is how much <laughs> Donald Trump's candidates failed. Yeah. I mean, I think right now it's six for seven in governor picks, and it could be so far, it could be seven for seven. Mm -hmm. Um, And but the other thing was, is that Republicans still wanted Republicans, sane Republicans to vote for. 
So if we look at, for example, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. Johnson Unit won with 57% of the vote, right? Passion run with 54. It wasn't because of ticket splitting, though. It was because people dropped off after voting for Sununu. Republicans dropped off. 65, 62,000 of them, as a matter of fact. So they didn't ticket split as much as they, because, and there were more votes cast in the, new, in the Senate race, as much as drop off. They voted, you know, we used to say you vote with your feet. I guess they mm-hmm. voted with, with, an, with a no vote or an empty vote. Yeah, and the same right. thing happened in Georgia. Think about this. Kemp, 2.1 million votes. Abrams, 1.8. War, Warnock is at 1.935. Mm-hmm. Overperformed Abrams. And Walker underperformed Kemp by 200,000 votes. Mm-hmm. So it tells me that re- there are a large amount of Republicans out there or enough Kind of what we saw in the Lincoln Project, who say, yeah. "I want to be a Republican, but I'm not voting for crazy." But I'm not down with that. Yeah, it's actually quite encouraging because we, you know, we yeah. tend to think like that we're in our own little bubble here, and there aren't very many of us. But in fact, there are enough to be decisive. Absolutely, and and people are tired of it. And I actually think, ironically, what led to that kind of drop off was Donald Trump's involvement, especially in the late stages of this election cycle. I mean, yeah. if you're Mehmet Oz, the last thing you wanted was Donald Trump election day weekend. <laughs> you're trying to play the moderate and Donald Trump comes to town? Yeah. And goes, but you know, his typical banana garbage talk? Yep. I'm not saying that Oz could have won, but it certainly didn't help. And I think Donald Trump constantly being in the media, in the news, you know, his talk, will he run, will he not run, make an announcement, mm-hmm. not. January 6th Select Committee, all of that has kind of been a baked-in equation in people's head. Yeah. That they're like, I don't want crazy. I I want mm-hmm. I just want I just want to go to work, have a nice life, you know. I just I don't want to have this um, this draining emotional day every day. Mm-hmm. All right, my friend. It's good to hear your voice. Great uh, to hear your I'll voice. To you very soon. Okay. Speak soon. <laughs> right, bye. Hey, Ron. Mike, are you gorging yourself on the numbers this morning? <laughs> yeah, they're all over the place. Good, bad, and ugly, right? It's always the <laughs> aftermath of election day. So trying to, trying to get a hold of myself and, and focus here. Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, first of all, there's so many questions, so much stuff to talk about. But for the sake of time, uh, I want you to pick one thing that surprised you the most. Uh, or has surprised you the most so far. Now we got races that are still outstanding, haven't been called yet. We don't know about Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Um, but what's one thing, doesn't have to be a race call, but what's one thing that has surprised you the most? Well, I think it's probably what I've been watching the closest in most of my career, which is the Hispanic vote numbers. Um, in the year when we're going to be doing a lot of analysis on how these results could have happened. The early exit polling is showing that there's still a 37, 38% base of Hispanic support for the Republican party, despite this outcome. Um, And now that's not an increase, at least we can't discern one, but it's not a decrease either. And so it's pretty clear that there's a new 
level of support for Republicans in the Hispanic community. And that's going to change uh, the country's politics and democracy for the next decade. I think it's probably going to be a more hopeful and hopeful change than where we have seen the party heading in the past few years. Time will only tell. But with a year that turned out like this, I am quite surprised that that base stood uh, where it did. Yeah. What do you think about the early numbers out of Nevada? Nevada, and I you know, want your expertise on this more than anybody else, there, there seems to be such an overwhelming number of ballots still in the mail. Like you're saying, with, with that many still out there, the race is still very much in the air. Um, people, experts like yourself and John Ralston, who know Nevada, are saying that this is anomalous, that this, this shouldn't be like this, that we should have something more definitive. Now, Definitely of course, the culinary What was that? Definitely in Clark County. In that, in that Definitely area. Yeah. The rules yeah, yeah, always yeah. take longer, right? But yeah. Right, right. But it, that culinary union, right? The culinary union yeah. that basically is the workforce of, of Las Vegas, 60,000 members strong, overwhelmingly Latino, uh, has the kind of the, the, the core of the Harry Reid machine, as it's called, um, is claiming now that they've they asked all and pushed all of its members to vote by mail. Um, and that accounts for this huge number of 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 mail-in ballots that yet to be counted. I don't know how true that is. I'm sure there's yeah. some truth to it. The numbers are definitely going to close in the Democrats' favor, but whether it's going to be enough or not, we, we just don't know. Yeah, and the thing you got to understand about Nevada is uh, this, this: the vote-by-mail rules there allow people to send in their ballot. They got to be postmarked by election day, not received by, mm-hmm. which means a whole bunch of people just put their ballot mail like on election day. Uh, so right. it could it could be a while because for some of these close races, those those ballots that continue to trickle in as the mail gets delivered could 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 be decisive in some of these really close races. That's new. Not not only that, but I think it could. Be, this is going to go into the weekend. I tweeted that last night. I think Nevada and Arizona could be particularly explosive over the weekend. I hate to use that yeah. term, but yeah. Republicans are. Are you know going to be seething about what happened last night? Completely unexpecting uh, the numbers, like most of us, to come in the way that they did, and are yeah. looking to those two states for hope. And there's there big numbers coming in by mail, especially in Nevada, and they're not going to want to. They're going to want to stop that count. Yeah, 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 yeah it's coming. Uh, speaking of stop the count, uh, just what, one other quick thing: the Trump people should be shitting their pants right now over DeSantis as victory margin, right? Yeah, you know, Ron DeSantis won by more than uh, Gavin Newsom did in California, which is saying something. Uh, again, this is where there was a massive. The, the other, un, you know, written about this is the polling seemed to be pretty accurate last night. Was yep, uh, sure was, with the exception of Florida, which was decisively yep. more Republican. Yep. Um, but having said that, look, DeSantis has the ability to go out and say, "I can win this thing when everybody else lost." And Trump is going to be blamed for these losses that could create an internecine warfare um, and is likely to. But, you know, Trump, Trump isn't going anywhere. And I think yeah. even in a Republican primary, a Republican uh, party that is on its heels the way that it is, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for anything other than Donald Trump to be nominated. And we'll just see whether DeSantis um, has the moxie to challenge him. All right, my friend. Good to hear your voice. Miss you. Uh, we will yeah, talk to you. Don't the number and see what else I find. <laughs> yeah, keep us posted, uh, and I will talk to you on the roundup on Friday. All right, Ron, looking forward to it, buddy. Talk to you soon, man.
Hello. Aaron Johnson. How are you doing this morning, man? I am doing great, man. I uh, got a little bit of sleep, um, but, you know, it's a it's a sunny day in Georgia, but kind of bittersweet for a lot of days. Yeah. Unfortunately. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the first time we talked uh, back in 2020, all eyes were on Georgia. All eyes were on Georgia again. <laughs> and from where it sits right now, right, it looks like there's almost definitely – uh, going to be a runoff. I mean, you tell me mm-hmm. uh, in the Georgia mm-hmm. Senate race, doesn't look like uh, Senator Warnock or uh, or Walker will be able to get to the 50 percent plus one they need to win outright. So what's what's uh, first of all, that is that accurate? Is that the way you see this going? And and uh, and then what's Warnock going to need to do to win another runoff? Well, what's really interesting, Ron, is that uh, no one has been able to call this race and there's still some votes that are out. Uh, and there are votes out in strong Democratic counties like the Cab County. Remember, we talked about that in 2020. Yep. I was like, hey, keep the Cab and places like Gwinnett and Cobb and, and Bibb County, which is in middle Georgia. But there are also some votes that are still out in some of the rural counties uh, where uh, Republicans did well. So I would say, if, if anything, um, if there were numbers that came in, I think it would favor Warnock, but I just don't know if they're going to be enough to actually. Um, for him to win it without a runoff. But but I think one of the things that I'm inspired by is yeah. that if you listen to the speech last night that Senator Warnock gave, uh, it was it was it was really an out of body experience because before he became a US senator, before he became a candidate for a US Senate, he's a pastor. And yeah. and he just encouraged all of us to just, you know, hold on, keep the faith. And, and don't give up and just be ready to go uh, in the morning. And so mm-hmm. I woke up this morning taking his his charge to heart and I've already started the process of actually beyond looking at the numbers, but just really talking to voters and kind of getting their feelings about, you know, what happened. So this is what he's got to do. Number one, I think that Senator Warnock has got to immediately go back up on the airwaves, go back into the field, um, get on people's devices. Uh, show people that he is trying to unite Georgia. Yeah. You know, campaigns are about inspiring people. It's about giving them hope for the future. And I think that the, the Georgia voters experienced hundreds of millions of dollars that poured in here, telling us how bad Herschel Walker was. It, it highlighted a lot of his falsehoods. It, it mm-hmm. highlighted his his past with domestic violence. It highlighted his 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 hypocrisy when it came to things that he would just blatantly say that were not true. But the Republicans did something, Ron, that was phenomenal in Georgia. And it wasn't that they sent Governor Brian Kemp back to the governor's mansion with a mandate. It wasn't even that they actually um, get, get, got enough votes for Herschel Walker to him to possibly go to a runoff with an incumbent U.S. senator that spent mm-hmm. outspent him three to one. Mm-hmm. They The most magnificent thing that Republicans did in this election cycle, they kept former President Donald Trump out of Georgia. Um, and, and to me, that was something that was very interesting because mm-hmm. at a time where Herschel Walker embraced Donald Trump publicly in, in a debate, we don't have enough time to talk about how yeah. Donald Trump and Brian Kemp's relationship has just been a seesaw. But uh, the question remains is one, uh, will Donald Trump interfere, you know, get sort of get involved in this race yep. in the runoff? If there is will one. they be able to and keep them away? <laughs> Will they be able to keep him away? And mm-hmm. and um, you know that that is something that I think that they should be complimented on. But 
No, I I think Senator Warnock lastly needs to um, really figure out a way to draw a very specific contrast between yeah. him and his his values and his record and what he wants to do in Washington versus his opponent. I think just going completely negative on Herschel Walker this time around runoff will not work. It's oh, got to be a confluence yeah. of positive campaigning, hope for the future, uniting Georgia, bringing Georgia together, but also reminding people of some of the things that Herschel Walker has done um, negatively um, that could really try to meet, you know, affect his candidacy. Because I think everything we threw at him uh, before the runoff uh, just, you know, quite frankly, didn't work. Yeah. So, so just uh, continue on the Senate race for a minute. So we also zoom out, you know, we got Fetterman one in Pennsylvania, right? And Republicans need to pick up two, uh, uh, two democratically controlled seats and um, still too early to call the Arizona race, the Nevada race. Um, how's a runoff going to look though, if the balance of power in the Senate is on the line versus the balance of powers known before the runoff in Georgia? It is going to be complete pandemonium. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you, Ron, you remember this. You and I talked about this in 2021. I mean, yep. you know, you were calling me, you know, we were, I was being very honest with you. I said, man, look, we've never experienced anything like this in Georgia, what we were experiencing in 2020 and 2021. Because remember, uh, it was nine weeks. Uh, so yeah. when, when the runoff started between um, Kelly Leffler and, yeah. um, and um, Senator Raphael Warnock at the time, you know, we, we didn't really kind of know uh, what was going to happen. And, and mind you, it was a runoff between uh, Senator Ossoff, now and then candidate John Ossoff against the incumbent David Perdue. So because uh, Warnock won a jungle primary, he then had to wait nine weeks to go face Kelly Leffler. So right. it was nine weeks of just um, campaigning <laughs> from national folks and and the digital and the, and the media. So now it's a, it's a quick race. It's a four-week race. And it's going to be on, you know, the first Tuesday in December. So I think um, you're going to see the national Republicans really just um, immerse themselves in trying to pick up this seat. Um, and so I think you'll you'll see a tremendous amount of money that Herschel Walker mm-hmm. will be able to raise. Mm-hmm. Any national Republican or you know regional Republican nearby that can have any type of influence, I think they'll be here. But I think you'll also see the same for the Democratic side. I think you will probably yeah. see some former presidents come back to Georgia. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if we see President Obama again. If you know, Oprah didn't make an appearance this time, we'll probably see Oprah sort of entertainers like her and others. And then I think um, you know, we are gonna have to figure out how do you get people to vote around Thanksgiving. Uh and that's yeah. right around the time where early vote was starting. I just think the absentee voting uh would be so important this time around because you gotta make people interested. Uh, in this race, you got to make sure that they understand the significance of their vote. Okay. Last question. Uh, just, just, I want to look at the governor's race for a minute, the difference, the Mm -hmm. massive difference in the vote margin between, you know, what's happening, what we're watching so closely between, uh, between Warnock and Walker, Stacey Abrams lost, she lost bad, like Mm -hmm. a lot of like bad. What do you attribute that to? What is the, what's, what's why, what's the difference there? Um, and what lessons do you think need to be learned? Well, first, we got to really um, thank Stacey Abrams for her outstanding leadership in this state. I mean, you know, most people know her history. 
She became a state representative um, against the establishment she ran and became the minority leader in the House. And against the establishment, she said, hey, I'm going to run for governor in 2018, and I'm not going to do it the traditional way. And and her model, it almost worked. She came Mm -hmm. uh, 50,000-plus votes short of becoming governor in 2018. Fast forward to 2020 and 2021, you notice, Ron, she got a tremendous amount of deserved recognition for helping deliver uh, Georgia uh, for Mm -hmm. Joe Biden and, and Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff because of the infrastructure she put in place. Well, fast forward to, to now in 2022, I think that, you know, she she ran the best campaign she could run against an incumbent governor, uh, mm-hmm. trying to actually convince Georgia voters of why a governor uh, who um, definitely has some, some positives and has some negatives too should be fired. I just think that that was the challenge for her. The second thing I think that um, she she did is that look it was it was just a, a a very deep concern from Georgia voters about um, really removing an incumbent governor that many felt like hey he was good on keeping the economy open you know he got mm. he got the schools back open and mm. um, yeah we should expand Medicaid but you know he has a plan but what she did do is that I think she ran a, a, a the best campaign she did bring some issues to the forefront. Uh, around voting, voting rights, around healthcare, Medicaid expansion, hospitals closing, uh, the lack of um, investment in minority participation uh, in businesses in, in the state of Georgia, and you know, honestly, look, I mean, she she tried to win the middle and and turn out the base, and I think you know when we look at the numbers, you'll see, unfortunately, that the base turned out, but just not enough. And the other thing I think that really hurt her is that there were clearly, if you just look at the numbers, Rob, there were some Kemp Warnock voters. So there were many mm-hmm. Republicans and independents and moderates who went in there and said, I'm going to vote for Senator Warnock, but then I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp. And I think they went Republican the rest of the ballot. So she could not pick up some of those um, voters who were willing to split the ticket a little bit. And then lastly, look, I just think that um, it's hard to to win twice. If you just look at the history of this country, uh, I don't know, but a few people who have actually been able to come back and win a rematch uh, after you've lost to someone for the first time. And, um, you know, it wasn't a money problem. She had the money. It wasn't a, an enthusiasm problem. She had people enthusiastic about her. She she ran a good campaign. There were no big mistakes, you know, I think that, that um, caused her to lose. But ultimately, I think that um, she was just not the person that, Georgia voters thought should actually move this state forward. And I, but I do think this, while she may be done in Georgia and political elected office, I would not count her out. I think that she will reemerge and you know reappear uh, in a very robust way on the national scene uh, to continue her fight for voting rights, for equality, for social justice, all the things that she talked about during her campaign. Certainly her organizing skills will be in high demand. It will be. And, um, you know, I think also it was a methodology that clearly she was willing to bank on, Ron. Look, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. This is the reason why you bring me on your show (laughs) is her methodology that she put in place. She believed in it. Um, She 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 invested in it. And even when people sort of maybe said publicly and privately, hey, we need to modify this methodology. We need to maybe, you know, rebrand it a little bit or do some things differently. She said, no, this is our plan. This is the way we believe we can galvanize voters. 
And so you got to respect her that she's like, hey, look, I'm going to win or lose this race with the infrastructure, with the plan, the mobilization tactics that I believe will work. And unfortunately, it didn't work. So now Democrats have got to have a lot of uh, soul searching moments. And we got to ask ourselves, what did we do right? And what did we do wrong? And I think you'll see some sweeping changes in Georgia as far as uh, how we do mm-hmm. things going, going forward in 2024. Very interesting. Darren Johnson, I know we're going to be talking to you uh, more soon as, uh, as, as Georgia develops, but you got a busy day ahead. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, and keep up the fight, man. It's good to hear your voice. Thank you. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity. And yes, we will be definitely um, talking again soon. And I would love to come back on before uh, we have the Senate runoff in, in December. Absolutely. Talk to you soon, man. Take care. Right, thank you, Ron. Good morning. How are you? Lucy Caldwell. Good morning. <sighs> what time did I'm you go to good. bed last night? <laughs> oh, I wasn't watching the clock. I have slept. I haven't showered. <laughs> Sorry, this TMI. <laughs> uh, I don't remember, but um, I got it. I got. I did get a few hours of sleep, so I feel good. How about you? Well, I I felt like I was really just doing something brilliant by going to sleep at eight thirty. But when you go to sleep at eight thirty <laughs> on election night, it turns out that you wake up around two and you just never never really yeah. make it back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So man, democracy smells good this morning. Um, Arizona still too early to call the statewide races uh, in, in Arizona, but uh, obviously Democrats hold early leads in all of the statewide races. Mark Kelly is running about five points ahead of Blake masters in the Senate race. Adrian Fontes is running about five points ahead of Mark Fincham in the Secretary of State race. However, uh, Katie Hobbs is only about a half point uh, ahead of Carrie Lake in the governor's race. This is one we've talked about quite a lot. Uh, one of those election deniers that got uh, propped up. Um, what do you think is driving that gap between the other statewide races and the, and the governor's race with Lake? And, 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 and more broadly, how do you feel about Democrats' chances in these ones? Well, look, Katie Hobbs is a truly terrible candidate. And I feel like when I've said that in recent weeks, people have given me a lot of flack because they think that somehow pointing that out means that I don't want Katie Hobbs to win. There's no one who wants Katie Hobbs to win more than I do. But she has been an appallingly bad candidate. And Arizona voters really are, obviously, we know from recent cycles, very open to the idea of voting for Democrats. They're also quite open still to the idea of splitting their votes, to voting for some Republicans and some Democrats. In the case of Katie Hobbs, she seemed throughout her campaign to ignore the fact that there is that audience of voters. She refused to debate. She ran a horrible campaign. At some point, her own campaign staff were leaking stuff about how bad things were going in an attempt to get Katie's attention. Even last night when she was taking the stage at her victory party, whatever, to say, you know, it's going to take some time for the votes to be counted. But there's no more campaigning to be done. She remains a very uncompelling candidate. And so Mm. I think that I am cautiously optimistic that she's going to eke this out. I'm surprised. I'm relieved. I'm 
ecstatic that it seems like she's going to eke it out. But I do think that she will eke it out because of being dragged along by, or pulled along rather, by mm. the positive message of someone like Mark Kelly. And also uh, just sort of she has fell into luck by the fact that her opponent, Carrie Lake, is a truly appalling terrifying figure. It's not true that Democrats are having a great day across the board in statewide in Arizona, though. Interestingly, some other statewide elections, for example, the superintendent of education, that race is being won pretty handily by the former Republican state attorney general, a guy named Tom Horn, uh, who campaigned basically on just the most hateful rhetoric around CRT, everything else. So I think we're seeing an interesting night, Mm. an interesting outcome in Arizona around what issues were motivating people that you could have a a rejection, fingers crossed, of someone like Carrie Lake, but then an acceptance of someone like Tom Horn, and who, by the way, is winning by something like 10,000 votes, but a a big, a big night. Okay, so because we talked about this a lot, I want to, I want to loop back on it. Um, you know, Democrats wanted Carrie Lake to be the Republican nominee. They they pushed for her in the Republican primary uh, against uh, Robeson. We've talked a lot about the ethical problems with pushing anti-democracy candidates. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. Uh, you know, most of the people we talked to didn't like it. Uh, uh, but was it also a bad strategy was the big question, right? Or was there something that changed for Arizona voters over the last several months, uh, because that strategy, you know, they, they employed it in, in other places. It seems to be paying off right now. Yeah, they did. I mean, they employed it in Michigan in the, um, in a congressional race that now has, is a, is a democratic pickup when they Mm -hmm. pushed a total lunatic in the Republican primary against Peter Meyer. Um, they arguably did that in Pennsylvania to a degree with Doug Mastriano um, and Josh Shapiro is winning big there. So I'm always happy to rethink, (laughs) rethink these strategies and to uh, say when, when I was wrong, I'm still not quite ready to throw in the towel in my view that that is a very risky proposition uh, I think that the fact that Lake and Hobbs, we don't know what the outcome is right now. And yeah. the fact that it's disclosed. That's a tough is, hedge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, we will be talking a lot more about that, I think, in the future. But I, I think the fact that some of these races were very close is is enough, um, is enough for me to uh, still think it's a terrible thing to do. Um, when I yeah. think about the hedges of the, the chessboard, I think of every race as a hedge. I right. think of every state as a, as a potential hedge, but I think each race, both in the general and then in the primaries, as a hedge. And that sometimes means that, say, in the Republican primary in Arizona, you could look and think this is a swingy state. And I hope that Karen Robeson, who has really shown herself to not be part of the extremist wing of the Republican Party, not my first choice, but also not an election denier, nothing like Carrie Lake in terms of her rhetoric, that that is the kind of person where you would think, well, Arizona heading into 2024 in a Robeson governorship would absolutely be better off 
than a yeah. Carrie Lake governorship. So I understand the calculus, but but sometimes I think it's it's a little more nuanced than what meets the eye on election night in November. Yeah, I think that's right. The, one other thing uh, I wanted to check in with you about, right, uh, is uh, the the audits from 2020. Everybody will remember Arizona became a circus of these these doomed, unprofessional audits over the over the presidential vote count in 2020. Do you think um, voters are going to react uh, to this in a similar way? Do you think there's going to be a repeat of the post-election sideshow uh, if Lake loses? How do you think that'll go? Well, I do think that there will be a sideshow. I think there would have been a, sh- a sideshow in, in any outcome, but it's, I think, going to be even worse in part because in Maricopa County, the by far the largest county in the state where all the votes are, actually mm-hmm. did have some problems with voting machines yesterday. Um, problems with voting machines, problems with the speed with which ballots are being tabulated and Every, like legitimate problems, not not conspiracy problems. Legitimate problems, just sort of like speed of hardware problems. Now, ah. they were problems that were very easily fixed by going to a different machine or waiting a little longer or uh, putting your ballot into a box where it would then be tabulated at a, at a central location. Uh, mm-hmm. And and Republican county supervisors, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, which was became the the uh, hero body in contrast <laughs> to the Arizona State Senate last year, and is this weird little cadre of never Trump Republicans, amazing group of people. The the soups yesterday, they themselves were driving to. Uh, to voting centers and and posting like we're on this, you know, we want to be responsive to this. None mm. of that will be enough for the MAGA crazies. And of course, Arizona now is also where Turning Point USA is headquartered, right? So it's also oh. ground zero for national insanity. <laughs> wow, I forgot about that strategy. And so I think that when you hear, you can already write the crazy conspiracy narrative, which is okay, you had your ballot, you wanted to put it into a machine at a polling place, and then they said it was too slow, so you should put it in this lockbox. What happened to your ballot after you put it in the lockbox? And you can just (laughs) foresee the story that will be told. There's one other little silver lining in Arizona, though, which is that the Arizona State Senate is what has wound up being very close. And, And there are some of the worst election deniers are not going to get through. It looks like a woman named Nancy Bardo, who's been in the legislature forever, Republican, is going to lose to a Democrat. Uh, it looks like a guy who's a totally insane person, Republican in the East Valley, who was in a pretty swingy district, is going to lose to a Democrat there, which is quite unusual. And so what you're left with is, and, and a couple of the Republicans who are on the bubble of whether or not they will get through, still too early to call, are generally Republicans who don't seem like they want to make this part of their agenda. In fact, one of them is a person who was really the lone state senator to stand up and speak out against the fraudulent audit ridiculousness yeah. last year. And so I think that it's possible that in at least one of the chambers of the Arizona legislature, the temperature may come down a lot. Of course, operatives are superstitious. So even as I say this stuff, I feel worried yeah, no. that I'm saying the opposite <laughs> of what's going to come true because this 
this phone call that you and I are having right now is just so <laughs> consequential that it's going to shift. It's going to shift the winds of the universe that Arizona is going to have a very like governorship, but that's a little, probably a little, um, megalomaniacal. <laughs> well, well, well what, what, one thing we can, I think, take away from this is that maybe Mitch McConnell was right in that uh, Canada quality has a lot to do with this. A hundred percent. Lucy, it's so good to hear your voice. Have a nap today, huh? Totally. You should too. You should have a nap as well. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. How we doing, dude? Oh, oh, Zach Tchaikovsky. How are we feeling in North Carolina this morning? It's a lovely day. Are we recording? Can I swear? We're, still, or what's we're recording. You, we're recording and you can swear. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, obviously the Senate outcome was not what, you know, Democrats hoped it would be, but I think it was more or less in line with the general expectations of the polling. So, you know, polling largely got it right there. NC-13, though, that's a real surprise. Yeah, yeah, so, here's the thing. I, this is what I want to talk to you about. It was, um, uh, and for everybody listening, this is um, uh, Democrat Wiley Nickel versus Republican Bo Hines uh, in North Carolina's 13th congressional district. So, so Zach, going into this one, um, I want to talk about this race in particular because it's, it was such a such an upset, such a sort of defy yeah. expectations race. So, going into the election, uh, our friends over at DDHQ gave Heinz an 80% chance of winning the race. And <laughs> the newly, it's a newly redrawn district that Biden would have won by about two, per, two points, um, the, the, the newly drawn district. But I want to know what happened, right? What allowed Nichols <laughs> to hold on in this, in this environment? Well, you know, so I think, I think if anyone who says that it was just one singular thing, I think is probably wrong. I think it was, it was many, many things at, at play. But a couple of the ones that, that jump out, for starters, Bo Hines is in a lot of ways very similar to an outgoing North Carolina representative. He got a lot of unflattering comparisons to Madison Cawthorn. Um, kind of a young guy, handsome, very dynamic, but really, really, really on the kind of extreme of the party. He also, he had a really messy primary. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that I've seen a ton of coverage about this yet, but like, he didn't live in the district. And in the primary, local Republicans used that to campaign against him. And it was in the papers, the local papers. It was on the message boards. I'm sure it was on next door, which even though it's not supposed to be, all that stuff. And so, like, you know, that coupled with the fact that, look, Wiley, uh, he ran a really solid campaign, but he's the most boring man on the planet. I mean, look, the guy's a lawyer. Like, he's not particularly compelling or dynamic. But look, he's an adult. He's a serious person. He's somebody that is of the area, you know, he, he is somebody who, you know, sort of embodies the values and the experiences of people from that part of town, from, from that part of the state. Bo Hines is from Charlotte. You know, he went to, he went to Yale. Uh, he's 27 years old. He's on marriage number two already. Like he is not of that district and all these things kind of, kind of work together. You know, the spending was roughly the same, um, you know, relatively decent ads on both sides, but like, Look, Wiley was an adult, and the people wanted somebody serious, and Bo's not, and it sucks for him. <laughs> but like, but like, <laughs> yeah, clearly. Do Do you think that because Wiley was sort of the you know, the boring adult in the room, that it made it harder to uh, you know run negative ads about him being uh, like the crazy, the extreme uh, radical Democrat, right? Do you think yeah. that had something to do with it? 
I mean, like, look at a picture of the guy. Does he look like crazed and radical? Like, no, he looks like he's been tucking his shirt in since he was 12 years old. Like, he's, <laughs> he's just not that exciting of a guy. And I think that, like, I think that maybe, God, you know, for, for, please let this happen. Maybe we're going to see a shift towards more people just saying, hey, I want the responsible, reasonable person, even if they don't necessarily align with my views 100%. I want good governance, not good tweets, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so Bo Hines, by the way, I mean, he like, I don't want to say he was going to be like Bobert or Marjorie Taylor Greene level, like controversy machine, but he, but he would have been kind of like the next tier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he said all kinds yeah. of stupid shit. Like, you know, he's talking about, talking about like, you know, there should be a panel of like local officials that can decide who can get an abortion or not. And it's like, Ooh. look, man, like you got Raleigh in your district. Yeah. Part of Wake County in your district. Like, did he not remember death panel? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not around for that episode. You know, I think that he was busy uh, playing high school football still. <laughs> actually, in all seriousness, I'm doing the math. I actually think that's what he would have been doing. Uh, oh so, so he really again, wasn't like, around for death panels and that yeah. whole that whole debacle. Wow. As like a youngish guy, you know, I'm not I'm not young anymore, but I consider myself youngish. You know, I, I'd like to see more young people represented in Congress and in office across the board. But like, yeah. when you have a resume as thin as Bo's. When you're 27 years old, you know, when you say these outrageous things and, you know, you look like your mom still dresses you, uh, <laughs> it, it's just, it's tough to convince people that like you would know what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, flashing back to 2020, uh, yep. we were on the Lincoln project, Trump won North Carolina by just over a point. Uh, the presidential yep. was close, but the North Carolina Senate race really flew under the, the national radar, right? Uh, Republican Ted Budd won by about four points and outperformed Trump in a lot of the state. So yeah. he, he, can you get, sort of give us a lay of the land about uh, how this race played out? Yeah. You know, look, candidly, I think it's still, there, there, there's, there's going to be a lot of analysis still, right? And so there's a lot that we don't know. One of the things that I think we do know though, is it's, it's the trends have not been great in North Carolina, Roy Cooper and, and some of the statewide office holders have been able to buck those trends. But at the federal level, I believe the last time we got like a good win statewide, I think that would have been, gosh, Kay Hagan, maybe? Kay Hagan. Uh, Kay Hagan versus yeah, Elizabeth right. Dole 2008, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, with, with respect to Kay Hagan and, and her campaign, like that was the Obama wave, right? Like, yeah, totally. I mean, they, they ran a solid campaign. I remember I was living you know, in state at the time, but that was, that was the Obama wave. Right. And, and so I think that the conditions here, while they're close, they, they are for, more favorable to Republicans in a midterm year. This is probably about the, the result you would expect. You know, uh, I think that Beasley, while she had many, many strong attributes as a candidate, at the end of the day, this is someone who is a judge, you know. Yeah. And if your goal is to, like, really galvanize people, get them fired up, I don't I don't know that, like, the skill set you need to be a good judge. And Beasley, uh, by all accounts, was excellent. Uh, I, I don't know that it translates as well to politics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, like, look, there's, <laughs> there's going to be a whole bunch of Henry. Could Jeff Jackson have won? Could Jeff Jackson have won? I I'm kind of of the mind that this was roughly going to be the outcome, no matter what, like Bud's a freedom caucus guy, but the perception is that he's basically like a normal ish Republican. And I just think in a midterm like this, in this state, a normal ish Republican wins. Um, yeah. Now I'm sure a lot of people will say, 
He's not. He's extreme. Maybe that's the case, but I think that perception can be reality, and the perception is that he's like normal enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, zoom out. Any other any other thoughts, reflections so far? I know you know everything hangs in the balance right now. We don't know the Senate. We don't know the margin. Are we now. are we talking just like um, purely election thoughts, or can we get into like yeah, whatever? just yeah, like what do you? Obviously, everybody's surprised, right? Everybody's surprised yeah. that uh, pleasantly surprised. Well, people we talk to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, how how are you? How are you feeling, sort of about the about the whole map? You know, I think realistically, I think this is about as good of an outcome as you could possibly have expected for the Democratic Party. I think the dynamic that this sets up, and this is something we haven't talked about yet, DeSantis won by 20 in a state that he really should not have won by 20. I mean, that's a strong performance. And Trump's candidates underperformed everywhere, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, no, not not basically. They underperformed everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. They didn't always lose. But he lost, his candidate lost winnable races, and they made races that shouldn't have been tight very competitive. Ohio, you know, and, and credit to Tim Ryan, he ran a great campaign. Uh, but you know, that, should, that race should not have been tight, uh, and that's a great example of it. So, <laughs> I think that we are about to see a really wild couple of weeks. I mm-hmm. don't know if Trump is getting back on Twitter. Uh, you know, it seems like a distinct possibility with Musk now as the owner. But like, the, the intra-party squabbling has already begun. I mean, I don't know if yeah. you've been following Maggie Haberman's tweets this morning or Jim Acosta's tweets, but, you know, apparently Trump is not having a pleasant breakfast, to put it politely. Yeah, I mean, it also co- sort of calls into question this whole announcement he was planning, which is sort of right around the corner, four or five days from now. So uh, this is going to be very Acosta interesting. Acosta tweeted out earlier, and I'm, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but roughly yeah. some of the effect of Trump probably should, his advisors think he probably should delay, but because the outcome was so bad. But they Trump should be shitting their pants right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, look, I, how many times have we been like, this is the end of Trump? Oh, he's yeah, so yeah, weak yeah, right yeah. now. Oh, that, 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 that ain't it. That ain't the lesson. But, but at the same time, he is in a weaker position than yeah. he has been operating from recently. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, is this the weakest position he's been in since like the immediate aftermath of January 6th? Like maybe, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, possibly. Uh, like, yeah. Like, seriously, when was the last time he was in this bad of a, of a position for his own yeah. political prospects? Uh, I think, I mean, because he has already so greatly diminished, right? He's sort of uh, yeah. uh, as irrelevant as he has ever been today. Uh, yeah. I think that yeah. was not true yesterday, day before. Yeah. So, I mean, Fox News... So I would which is not to say, which, which is not to say he is irrelevant, right? It just means that he is. Um, it's it's not a good look. He's he's losing right yeah. now. He's losing bigly, and he doesn't like that. <laughs> totally. So I'm willing to bet that your audience does not read or watch a ton of Fox News. And hey, I get it. Uh, yeah. I would encourage though anyone who is listening yeah. today, just check out what the website says. Turn it on yep. for 15 minutes, and like, you might be surprised. Not like. You know, you're not going to be like, oh, this is great. I want to keep watching this. But you're going to be, you know, you might be surprised by the way that they're covering this outcome and the way they're talking about Trump right now. Mm-hmm. Because, man, yep. there sure feels like, and gosh, I know we've said this a thousand times, so take it with a grain of salt, but there seems to have been at least a slight tonal shift. Will it last? Probably not. You know, yep. they always go back to their guy. But at the same time, this is, you know, it's, it's worth keeping an eye on. 
It is worth it. And, and I totally, yeah, co-sign the recommendation to go flip over to Fox News if you're, if you're you know, watching uh, cable news coverage of this because um, yeah. it's, it, it, a lot of these hosts, a lot of these pundits who, are, who were expecting something completely different to happen, they, they're, some of them are speechless and don't really yeah. know how to, don't really know how to spin it yet. Um, and it's, uh, they, they are, they're actively discussing whether or not uh, Trump's involvement in these races and propping up the mock candidates was good for the party and for the margin of, uh, you know, the balance of power, you know, so I totally, totally endorse This is not a particularly original statement, but both of us have some friends who either work across the aisle or used to work on the other side of the aisle. And every single one of them wants Trump gone. Every yep. single one of them wants somebody else to yep. run. And, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's this fascinating dynamic where, you know, almost the entire apparatus of professionals would like him to just kind of like retire and go away. Well, and the ones making money off of them. Even them, man, they can make money off someone else, I think. I, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting dynamic for, for a long time to come because, you know, and, and several people have pointed this out already, and I think it's fair. You know, DeSantis is in a strong position right now, but like when they get on debate stage and Trump is like, oh, look at Ronnie D. He's a little pee pee poo poo bitch boy. Like, you know, how do you prepare for that? Right. <laughs> like it's it's going to lead to weird outcomes. Um, yeah. But it's looking like it'll yeah. be a contested primary. Yeah. Now, sorry, Ron, to keep you because I know that you have other stuff to do. However, while I've got you, uh, <laughs> Uncle Joe, a little tougher yeah. to primary him today than it was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, a little tougher, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think we should read too much into um, into uh, Biden's strength uh, on the heels of these midterms. Um, I think you're right, but I think that this yeah. was at at a minimum not a clear repudiation of him. And I think right. if there had been, we'd be having a very different conversation about his political future today. Whereas now, yeah. it's like, like it seems like we're in a holding pattern. We don't really know. If we, yeah. if the Dems had gotten blown out, they would be like, hey, yeah. man, he's got to go. He's too old. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's, you know, in terms of the 2024 race and whether or not he runs and how strong he would be if he did run, I think it's still status quo at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Ron, how you doing? Hey, David Becker. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Um, things are things are busy, but uh, but all things being equal, this is um, uh, the you know yesterday went pretty well. Pretty pretty good pretty good night. Have you have you slept off your hangover from uh, your uh, election coverage marathon? Yeah, no, on, uh, no hangover. <laughs> <CBS News>? um, <laughs> but uh, but I got I got I got two hours sleep. I was pretty happy with that. Oh um, wow. About to head back from head back uh, from New York down to DC. Uh, um, well, it looks like uh, it was all things considered a pretty bad night for election deniers. Um, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson uh, beat her election denying opponent uh, Josh Shapiro, not an election denier. Uh, uh, will will appoint the Secretary of State uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, Secretary of State candidates in Minnesota and New Mexico, both election deniers, have lost. Um, and it's still too early to call the Secretary of State races in Arizona or Nevada, where there are election deniers running. So, but broadly, right. how how confident are you now 
that there will be safe and secure elections in battleground states uh, in 2024, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, especially Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. So we're talking 2024 now. Yeah. You're pro- I'm projecting two years out in the future. I Look, I, 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 some of that depends on the outcome of these races, obviously, um, yeah. especially Arizona and Nevada, where, you know, two particularly virulent leaders of the election denial movement um, have been working. But putting aside the politics and who's going to win, the foundation we have is very, very strong. I mean, we have very secure elections. Last, you know, yesterday, this week, we had an election where we pro- came, if we didn't hit record turnout for a midterm, we came really close. We'll see the final numbers in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's there were some problems, as there always are with any major election, but they were handled. You know, the Maricopa County problem was identified very early. Election officials worked diligently and not a single voter was disenfranchised. There was actually fail-safes in place to make sure they wouldn't be in Detroit. Same thing. So everything worked as it was supposed to, given the fail-safes. The ballots are paper. The audits are happening after the unofficial counts are complete. Everything is being done extra transparently. We have a really good foundation of election security. Um, Only we can destroy that. (laughs) And if we... If we um, see some election deniers get into office and Secretary of State's jobs, um, that could be a real problem. Um, and the guardrails of democracy are going to have to hold up a little bit stronger. Yeah. Yeah. What's your biggest takeaway then about uh, about election integrity after last night? Because, um, you know, while it while it's it's the, the picture is still, uh, you know, developing. Right. But it looks like the candidates who were. Um, you know, actively running on election denialism, uh, they got punished. But I wonder what you think about the, you know, like America, Maricopa County, for example, there was a lot of conspiracy mongering because of those technical issues, which were very yeah. quickly fixed. And so I wonder, you know, as it, as it goes, as it, as it comes to the voters, how much of that conspiracy uh, thinking ends up, um, you know, dying out a little bit because of these elections election nine candidates losing and how much of it is still sort of going to be stoked. Yeah. It's so hard to predict that. I mean, it is, um, you know, there have been some good signs. Uh, Dr. Oz conceded um, uh, Tudor Dixon, Michigan, the gubernatorial candidate conceded as did Matt DiPerno, the attorney general candidate who uh, was very active in the election denial movement. Um, So there are some signs that, some sense of rationality is returning to some degree, but we also hear the Secretary of State candidate in Michigan, who is behind by um, uh, many hundreds of thousands of votes, actually farther behind than either the Attorney General or Governor's candidate, is still not conceding and is claiming massive fraud without any evidence, of course, and there isn't any evidence. We are hearing claims of vote rigging from the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Arizona. Right, so I think. Yeah, so I think we're going to we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, this is this is not going away. That's one thing I'm certain of. It's not like mm-hmm. a switch has been flipped. The damage that has been done over the past 2 plus years is severe. Um yeah. it is not going to be fixed by one election. If the Republican Party in particular um which we need as a nation, we need a strong rational reality-based conservative party and a strong strong rational reality-based liberal party. That's good for policy. And 
unfortunately, we don't really have that right now. If there was some rational discussion right now, there would be a rational discussion about what did what did we as a party do to not achieve the gains that we thought we would. And by the way, there's still a lot of races out there, so it's unclear what the total picture of the election is so far. But it's clear they underperformed at least. And I don't know if that's going to happen because we're still hearing claims of election rigging. Um, it's um, it's really unfortunate. We're going to be stuck with this for some time, I think. For a while, yeah. On that on that note, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, Rolling Stone ran this headline yesterday. I think it said Trump plans to challenge the 2022 election starting in Philly. Uh, obviously, that was before we had any results. Um, and if that was in fact the plan, and uh, and now uh, as we've been talking about all these all these elections, all, all, he had a very bad night, like a very bad night. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that you know, um, now there's no predicting what Trump and Trump universe is going to do, but do you think, uh, that his, you know, the feasibility of advancing, uh, you know, claims of election fraud on the heels of such a resounding defeat for everybody who's been, you know, promulgating the big lie. Um, do you, do you think that goes away a little bit now? Do you think it becomes a lot harder for him to do that? I mean, it requires us to believe we live in a rational universe. Yeah. Where incentives are working the right way, they you know if we would we would sus- suspect that a political party would reject a leader who has led them to multiple underperforming defeats, mm-hmm. um, and embrace a different philosophy. But that hasn't happened so far. So I think we have to wait and see. I am certainly not going to predict um, the behavior of the former president. My Co-author Major Garrett is much more qualified to do that because we've covered him for a long time. <laughs> but um, it, it is a I, I, I think it's safe to say he has never shown any desire to do anything other than double down, regardless right. of what happens. No matter right. the losses he piles up, no matter the debasement of his party that he leads, the corruption that he has seen, the investigations that are being um, undertaken against him, he just keeps doubling down. So I don't know how we could expect anything other than the um, in the short term, at a minimum, him trying to continue to do that. And um, especially given that if there was a big Republican winner on the night, it was the man perceived to be his primary challenger, which is Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. We're going to be talking about that one for a while. Yeah. Uh, David Becker, get some rest, man. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks. <laughs> Have a great week. We'll, uh, we're going to be waiting for a few days to get the final results. Yes, sir. So no one should be celebrating or spiking the ball or anything like yeah. that. This is there, there's a lot of work to be done, and the election officials are working 24 seven right now. Yes, sir. Thanks for your work. Talk to you soon. All right. Hey, take care. All right. Bye bye. Hello there. Lene Erickson. How you doing? <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of a busy day, but a better one than I expected. <laughs> so I'm not mad. It's a good day for democracy. Yeah. Uh, well, except for Carrie Lake, who is, Lake. remains to be the scariest person that is still yeah. in the mix. But yeah. Yeah. We got, obviously there are some, uh, still some too close to calls and we still don't know the margin in the house. Uh, it's funny. I was talking to uh, both Susan and Steve Israel a little bit earlier about the margin, and I was thinking about you because we might have to start saying uh, 
insurrectionist almost speaker, Kevin McCarthy, depending on how this That's plays out. That's right. <laughs> I know. I was talking to somebody earlier who's like, uh, he totally failed tonight. He's not going to be speaker. But I'm like, who else wants that job? It's a horrible job. Seriously. I don't know. Like, uh, uh, I was like, Steve Scalise, question mark? Like, who wants to be held hostage by Marjorie Taylor Greene every day of their life? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... I want to talk about Pennsylvania for a minute. Um, yes, please. Because, because we, we talked about this quite a lot, and uh, I think this was very interesting. So you were on the show right after President Biden released his plan for student loan debt forgiveness. We had a great conversation about that. And you said that uh, turnout driver in battleground states was going to be a lot more Dobbs than student loan forgiveness, right? Because that, that energy was already picking up. And in Pennsylvania, uh, we now know from the exits, the percentage of younger voters stayed about the same. Um, it was 13, 13% in 2020, 12% in 2022. Uh, Fetterman won more of those younger voters than Biden did. Biden got 62% in 2020, and, and Fetterman just came away with 70%. Um, but abortion was ranked the number one issue for Pennsylvania mm-hmm. voters. Uh, 36% of them uh, ranked it as their top issue compared to 29% saying inflation. So um, what do you think the student loan forgiveness uh, uh, move gimmick had on turnout. Did it work? Was it a good GOTP strategy? Is there going to be any uh, any any reflection on that now, given these results? How do you feel about it? I mean, I think it is very clear that it was not a good GOTV strategy. Um, first of all, we had Dobbs before we had student loan cancellation. So it was a problem that we didn't need to solve. We already knew that we had solved it in the worst way possible, which is by taking away a constitutional right from a lot of Americans. But um, people were already energized. And um, Harvard Institute of Politics does the best polling of young voters. Mm-hmm. They do a massive polling every single year. Uh, of young voters and their ranking of important issues were inflation, abortion, protecting democracy, climate change, gun control, immigration, and crime. And then they got to student debt. I mean, that is massive in terms of the number of things that they listed before they got there. So we we know from self-report that student debt cancellation was not the number one thing for young voters. They they were more excited about climate change and the uh, mm. you know the inflation <laughs> the inflation yeah. and uh, the IRA rather than um, rather than student debt cancellation. And I think so when you look at the difference between. Um, States like Michigan versus states like New York, you can see that this is all about Dobbs, right? Because states yeah. like New York, Democrats lost a lot of races we shouldn't have in New York. And that's because voters were like, we're not going to outlaw abortion in New York. And they're right. Voters right. are smart. Yeah. Yeah. But in very... Michigan, they would have. In Wisconsin, yeah. they would have. So people in Pennsylvania, they would have. So people showed up. Uh, people in New York got as much debt cancellation as. People in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, which is right now zero because it has been held up in the courts, right. but there is absolutely no evidence that this was a motivator for folks getting out to vote. Um, and in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Uh, okay. So just one more sort of zoom out big picture while I got you. Um, uh, election deniers had a really bad night, really bad night. Um, and I, I just wonder if there's any other... Any specific races that you had your eye on um, that uh, that you think are worth highlighting uh, for people? Any other any other noteworthy takeaways? 
I am so glad that we don't have to talk about uh, Governor Tudor Dixon or Governor Doug Mastriano. Like, these are people who literally would not count the votes of their constituents in the next election. And they have been trounced heartily by mainstream Democrats who made it clear that they were for a um, kind of big tent coalition. They pushed back against the far left and uh, and they made themselves a mainstream choice against these crazy extremes. And the, the biggest takeaway that I have looking at these big states and the outcomes is how much actual split ticket voting there was, which is not usual. There are lots of people who say there are no swing voters. It's not a thing. Well, then Mm. how can you be a Brian Kemp, Raphael Warnock voter if you're not a swing voter? And, you know, Maggie Hassan was able to outperform the gubernatorial candidate in New Hampshire by like 12 points. Tim Ryan way outperformed the gubernatorial candidate in Ohio. So where we gave people a mainstream Democratic option, they went for it. And that is very heartening. And I think the only path forward to saving democracy in 2024. Yeah. Is it still uh, way too early to be thinking about uh, Democratic leadership shakeups after this? You know, I think it's hard to know, because if we had been in what we expected, which was kind of the historical trend of Democrats losing a ton of seats the first midterm after a presidential election that we won, then I think there wouldn't be a lot of reason that Nancy Pelosi would want to hang out and, you Mm -hmm. know, sit through the hearings that insurrectionist Speaker Kevin McCarthy is going to put together. (laughs) But Almost, Speaker. But... Democrats outperformed. And so I think it puts all of the leadership battles into a little bit of question. Um, I know at some point there will be a transition to the next generation of Democratic leadership. I just don't know when it's going to be. And I think that applies both to Pelosi and her leadership team, but also to people like Joe Biden, right? Like we just won a lot more than we thought we were going to. And that really puts you in a don't change horses in midstream kind of a place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, we're doing okay. (laughs) We're doing okay. The opposition are literal Nazis. Like, what should we do? And I think we should keep doing what we're doing for now because clearly our candidates outperformed. Yeah, clearly. Uh, Well, I hope you're um, popping bottles at some point. Um, not yet, <laughs> but, not yet. but at some point when, when the dust settles, um, and I can hear your calendar going off in the background, so I don't want to hold you. I up know, long, I'm but, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's good to hear your voice. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Talk soon. Hello. Mark Polymeropoulos. It's been a minute, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How was your evening? Uh, I, I think I went to bed after I saw that Abby won. So, yeah, very okay. Yeah, right, fair enough. Well, I've been checking in with uh, with folks all day today, and I wanted to talk to you about the um, the national security implications yeah. here, especially you mentioned Abby. So there were three uh, House members known for their national security experience uh, who were in tight re-election races last night. Right. So Abigail Spanberger uh, and Elaine Luria, both in Virginia, and then uh, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. So Elaine Luria uh, lost 
a re-election bid, but Spanberger and right. Slotkin, who, 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 as you know, both had careers in the CIA, uh, won re-election. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how important it is to have legislators with national security experience in Congress right now? Sure, absolutely. And so, you know, so first of all, I think that, you know, it's no, it's no surprise to a lot of us uh, uh, who were colleagues of, of Slotkin and Spanberger, you know, two former agency officers, uh, you know, of course, different. Uh, Slotkin was an analyst, Spanberger was a case officer, but they really were both kind of battle tested from kind of, you know, their time in national security. And I think it's incredibly significant. Um, uh, but let me just hold one piece on, on this, too, because yeah. I also think that, uh, uh, you know, this is their time. You know, the, you know, a lot of you know, there was much talk about them being almost, you know, future leaders on the national security uh, sector in, in democratic politics, this is their time now. You know, they've won multiple elections. And so I think that, you know, their names are going to be you know, banded about in conversation, and not only for future leadership positions on the Hill, but also future positions in democratic administrations. So I think it's really important, you know, mm-hmm. these, are, these are two individuals who have grown in stature. Um, and so that's, that's, I think that's good for the country. In terms of actual foreign policy, this is yeah. huge because both of them, again, I think, you know, uh, because of their time at the agency, um, believe in an activist foreign policy for the United States. You know, they certainly understand the importance of alliances, um, you know, their time kind of honed from bilateral intelligence ties. But, but you, know, you know, it's expanded even to the importance of NATO. Um, and both have been very, uh, uh, you know, prominent in expressing continued support, increased support for Ukraine. And so, you know, it's, it's important to have individuals like this on the Hill and Democratic side to be able to make those points because it's a repudiation of, you know, really this America first isolationism that a lot of us were really worried would take hold on the Hill, um, yeah. you know, with this election. And and I think that there was, you know, there was significant concern, especially in the administration, um, that we'd lose some congressional support for, uh, uh, for, for aid for Ukraine. So really, their victories, I think, are incredibly significant. Um, you know, in the short term, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, but again, what I said before, in long term, in terms of them, they are now the leaders, uh, two young mm-hmm. female leaders in the national security field for the Democratic Party that I think we're going to hear from, uh, you know, for decades to come. And that's really good. Yeah, it's so important you mentioned Ukraine and aid to Ukraine, because, you know, for, for people who are paying attention, that was that was really hanging in the balance uh, of these midterms. And you know, while we don't have a final margin in the House, so remains to be seen. Um, uh, it, it looks like we're going to be okay. Um, and, and we should note, I'm hoping to check in with Molly, our friend Molly McHugh at some point, but she's over, uh, either having already crossed into the border or is, uh, uh, <laughs> driving, driving across right now, uh, with the winter gear for, uh, for track. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. There's, but there's, there's another point too, as well, because there also was a, you know, if you remember the progressive, uh, uh, from the Democratic, you know, sides that sent that letter to Biden that became incredibly controversial, you know, urging yeah. negotiation. And so again, the Spanbergers and the Slotkins being back in power, um, will be able to kind of push the Democratic Party, push the caucus more to the center again. And I think that I, 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 I'm confident. I don't think I'm very confident that, uh, those in Ukraine in, uh, in their national security, uh, uh, sphere are, are breathing a sigh of relief after last night, but also certainly understand the significance of, of Slacken and Spanberger's win. Yeah. Uh, there's one other thing I want to mention, um, because it, this made me think of the piece that you just wrote, um, with the title, uh, Republicans need an anti-radical or counter-radicalization strategy. Um, uh, something like that. And and during Elaine Luria's concession speech, several of her supporters booed her. Um, and she said, please don't boo because the success of this district depends on her success. She's talking about her opponent. 
she won this election. We do need to wish her the best of luck. And it's kind of one of those uh, one of those McCain moments, right? That we have not seen right. very many of. You've been thinking a lot about how Republicans need to, uh, as you said, develop a counter radicalization strategy. How do you think that they could use a speech like this as an example for how to do that? Well, it's a model. You know, it, it, it's the same thing as Baloney's speech, um, where he just conceded in in, uh, in his New York district. And so, it, you know, it, it is it is definitely a model for how to do things right. And it's you know, it's a respect for democracy. It's, it's understanding kind of the long view. Of what's important for America, and it's you know it's unfortunately something that I don't think we see from the other side of the aisle. Um, but Luria certainly understands uh, you know the, the stakes here, and 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 let's let's also not forget you know a lot of these individuals like you know Luria lost, but there still is a, a you know it's a major role for her to play in national security, um, and you know that's the same thing for uh, you know for others because if you if you jump into the electoral process, you certainly understand this more than anyone. You're going to lose some elections. It doesn't mean. That's the end of your political career, your national security career. So I really, I you know, I liked what she did. Um, you know, I would like it to see that uh, you know, from the other side as well. I'm not sure you will, especially if some, you know, you have some more contested elections um, coming up over the next, you know, 24, 48 hours uh, out west. Um, but it's it's just the right thing to do. It's the way politics used to occur, as you know, uh, in the United States. But really, you know, it, it goes back, I think, just just to the, you know, the, the toxicity of the of the Trump era and. Um, there's just this notion that you 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 know you you never give up, you don't concede, even if the truth is staring you right in the face. So I you know again, I really like what where you did, but again, it, you know there's there's more uh, it, there's there's a there's a long future for her ahead, and so I think it's also smart for her to do this as well. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, any any um any thoughts about how this uh, these results and sure they're preliminary, but it certainly is defying expectations. Um, uh, predictions, how the rest of the world, how, how our allies and our adversaries are going to be reading sure. tonight. What a great question. And because my phone has been blowing up from friends overseas, you know, I spent a oh, lot of, wow. you know, quite a long time um, as an agency officer, you know, serving abroad. And, and, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't understand that the, the kind of the, the, the detail that, that, you know, our friends and allies and even our adversaries, you know, you know, how they look at us and people were, you know, it, it, I remember going several years ago to Greece, you know, where I was born. Um, and I, I jumped in a taxi a taxi cab and the taxi driver was giving me kind of his, his analysis of congressional uh, races in the United States. And so people really do follow this because it matters. America matters. You know, for, yeah. regardless of for all our problems, you know, we, we are still seen as, you know, as the bastion of, of uh, you know, economic and political freedoms, um, religious freedoms. Uh, uh, and, and so people care and people were really worried. You know, the, the notion about, you know, election deniers and political violence. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that's really interesting, I spent my career kind of wagging my finger at other countries, telling them to do better. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it looks a little hypocritical sometimes. But I think the world has is, is, is breathed a sigh of relief just that there was a number one, that the election seems to have gone off without a hitch in terms of violence. But number two, that, you know, this kind of uh, election denying America uh, first isolationist crowd. Uh, you know, did not do well. And that, that mm-hmm. pretends uh, you know, very, very positively for kind of our, our friends and, and allies overseas. Yeah, it feels it feels like uh, just a, uh, so such a huge relief, similar to the way 2020 felt. But. Right. <sighs> Mark, so good to get your perspective. Uh, I miss you, man. We got to catch up. Absolutely. Good to chat. Talk to you soon. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Ron. Hey, Congressman. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? 
I'm doing, uh, I'm doing all right. Still a little tired. Good. So, yeah. uh, in the lead up, uh, to the election, we saw mm-hmm. all four Republicans, uh, in the running to chair the house budget committee promised they were going to use the debt ceiling as levers to force cuts to social security and Medicare. Some Republicans suggested they might investigate the January 6th committee or people on it. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about leadership yeah. uh, in the House, Uh-oh. because our, sure. our our friend Susan Del Percio uh, a few months back predicted that a narrow Republican margin was going to give the extremist MAGA wing um, uh, of the House Republican caucus a lot of leverage over Kevin McCarthy. And now I think there's a mm-hmm. big question mark. Does Kevin even get the speakership? Right. Um, and, right. and also, uh, you know, with that, if they're going to have a narrower margin, Initial pre, pre, initially predicted, how is that margin going to impact, um, you know, how much exactly. leadership will need to appease the extremist wing in order to mm-hmm. accomplish, you know, the ordinary business of governance, right? How, how much influence mm-hmm. will the will the crazies have, essentially? How are you mm-hmm. reading that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Kevin McCarthy woke up this morning with a, a migraine headache, and it, it wasn't the result of a hangover from a triumphant victory uh, last night. He woke up to a much slimmer majority uh, than anybody would have anticipated. And in fact, uh, as of this conversation, the presumption is he'll have the majority, but there's still a a very narrow path for Democrats. And so he now faces a a very significant problem that vexed his predecessors, that vexed Speaker Paul Ryan uh, and vexed Speaker John Boehner. And that is that he's got to find a way of winning uh, an election in his conference and governing at the same time. With such a small majority, everybody's influence is inflated uh, and amplified. Uh, every vote counts more. So he's going to have to make promises to the extremists, to the Marjorie Taylor Green wing. And at the same time, he's going to have to make promises to the more moderate uh, members of his conference. I think that the next big story uh, following this midterm is can he assemble a governing majority? And it's not clear right now that he'll be able to do that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but you, you could say with a straight face that it might have been better for Democrats if Republicans won with a wider majority in the House, right? Well, there's no question that um, had the, the new... Uh, Republican majority repeated the mistakes of the Tea Party Congress that, that came to town uh, back in 2010, uh, that um, the country would, of course, correct it and yeah. uh, most likely would have uh, supported a Democratic president to put a check on the excesses of the Republican majority. If Kevin McCarthy has to rely on the extremists in his caucus and pursue those excesses, very good chance that the Democrats will, will will win the presidency in two years. If McCarthy realizes that the only way he can govern uh, is by creating a coalition of moderates, um, you know, that might be more palatable to the electorate in two years. It remains to be seen. Yeah. Okay. Just zooming out a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I think everyone will remember from our, from our previous conversations, your job was to uh, preserve the house majority, to win the Mount house majority mm-hmm. when you were a leader. Um, uh, what advice, first of all, what lessons do you think um, national Democrats are going to take from this surprising result? What are they going to attribute the victory to, whether it, whether it's right or wrong? And then 
are, are there any specific, uh, you know, pieces of advice you might offer them yeah. as to how to proceed from here? Well, the first bit of advice that uh, I, I, I would give is uh, not to analyze uh, based on uh, raw emotion or day uh, after uh, intuition. They, they need to, both parties need to do a very serious postmortem. I, I reject and I've always rejected the kind of day after pronouncements that both parties make because it's largely based on emotion, the emotion of the moment, your intuition, your tribal truth. I think both parties need, are going to need to do a postmortem. Take a look at data, not drama, but data to really understand why this midterm defied every prediction, virtually every pundit, and history itself. And that will give both parties the, uh, the analysis they, that they need uh, in order to approach the, the next cycle. I do think that um, boy, there, there is something that uh, continues to go on with polls. I mean, I was taking a look at polls across the spectrum, and once again, the polls were uh, largely incorrect or misleading. And so I think that both parties have to really kind of do a deep dive into what is going on with polling that leads the punditry to make these assumptions of these sweeps that turn out to be barely ripplets. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Congressman Steve Israel, I don't want to hold you up. Uh, I hope you're having a beautiful day. Um, thanks so much for your wisdom, insights, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. It's my pleasure. Talk to you. Hi. Hi. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you again on Friday. We got a great new guest joining the roundup. So that should be really fun. Uh, in the meantime, feel free to share this podcast with anybody you know who's also trying to make sense of what just happened. I'll talk to you soon.